It's great to see everybody. And thanks for coming out on a midweek uh, busy time of year. Good to have you guys. Good to see you, Karen and Len. What a blessing. What a blessing. If I'd have known you guys were coming, I would have looked forward to tonight even more than I already did. So uh, that's awesome. And then uh, we need to pray for Steve. It's going to be a tough weekend coming up. Uh, the Cowboys and 49ers are playing in the playoffs. and uh, going to be tough for you. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. First time in three years the Cowboys have... Uh, by the way, the Cowboys are 5-2 and two against the 49ers in the playoffs. Uh, one of the losses, of course, was the famous the catch, they call it, with Dwight Clark. And the other one, my son informed me today, was uh, the only other time the 49ers beat the Cowboys in the playoffs, was uh, what Troy Aikman to this day calls his favorite game he's ever played in, was another NFC championship. It kept the Cowboys from going to the Super Bowl three times in a row in the 90s. They ended up, obviously the 49ers went that year then, but the Cowboys came back the next year and went, so then three out of four. But anyway, uh, pray for Steve. It'll be a rough weekend, we believe, but we hope and pray. Uh, but we'll actually, tell you what, let's do, let's do a little experiment. Um, you pray for the 49ers to win, and I'll pray for the Cowboys to win, and we'll see who's more spiritual. I mean, that's scientific, right? That's... <laughs> Is he really? McCarthy? Will he be back for the game? Are you kidding? Is that right? You're kidding. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> All right. Enough. Enough with this fleshly stuff. Let's uh, let's get to the Word of God. All right. So. Uh, for those of you that are uh, streaming or that watch this video later, I want to apologize. Last week we had a technical glitch and we thought it was streaming and recording, but at the end of our Wednesday night service last week we discovered it hadn't. So that's why you see part nine on the screen. For those of you that are here that were here last week, we're going to do part nine again just so that the recordings are in sync. Um, and so it'll be a little bit of rehash and then we won't spend quite a bit uh, as much time on each point as we did last week, mainly for the sake of those of you that are here in the auditorium. Um, but uh, we did chase quite a few rabbits last week, if I recall, so that's, you know, we didn't cover as much uh, content ground as far as the uh, 24 rules of interpretation. But that's what we want to get to uh, tonight. But again, I appreciate your patience. I know uh, those of you that try to live stream, our bandwidth here is not that great, and we seem to, to get a lot of reports of people um, struggling with it. By the way, I've been meaning to ask you, Gary, when you live streamed while you were sick, didn't you live stream? I tried last Wednesday night. Well, I knew that, but that, no. you've just watched the recordings? Okay. <laughs> Are you you're sick and tired of my teaching? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> what have I heard? Uh, no. So anyway, thanks for your patience. We're going to try to see what we can do here in the new year about upgrading our internet if it's even possible here but anyway uh, always remember at the very least you can watch the videos they're usually posted uh, same night uh, you know those Wednesdays are usually up by 9 or 10 o'clock and then the Sundays are usually up by mid-afternoon alright so let's make a couple of uh, quick announcements as is our custom yesterday i was on christian underground news network and the topic was how to prepare for the rapture 
And uh, you're probably thinking, prepare for the rapture. You know, the rapture's it's, it's a promise. It's coming. It's going to happen at any moment. We don't know when. How do you prepare for that? Well, believe it or not, I searched the scriptures and found at least seven uh, things that I think uh, are relevant to that topic. What, so how can we prepare for the rapture? So I encourage you to listen to that. It's just a podcast, as always, on uh, Tuesdays. And you can get to it through the Not By Works app or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search for Not By Works Ministries and you can subscribe to our channel. In that podcast, I talked about the To Whom It May Concern rapture placards. We used to have some back on the resource table at the back of the auditorium. I think we're out. But anyway, uh, I put this up because this is something I referred to in the podcast and thought I might mention it. But it's a way to leave a message for those that are left behind. And that's one way to prepare for the rapture. Are you thinking about if suddenly you meet the Lord in the air, your loved ones, friends, even relatives who may not know the Lord that are left behind? Well, this these rapture placards are a way uh, to do that. And you can learn more about that at Not By Works. And then uh, don't forget Sundays we're doing, uh, we're continuing our study of uh, identifying end times Babylon. So we started that last week as part of our end time study. And we'll pick up where we left off this, uh, this coming week. But uh, for uh, today, we want to continue to look at uh, what uh, theologians uh, call hermeneutics, the study of how to study the Bible. We're calling it how to read and understand uh, the Bible. And I mentioned last week how important uh, this topic is because, you know, there's no other literature where you, generally speaking, have to take a course on how to read it. I mean, if you want to read a novel, you pick up the novel and you start reading and you understand it, generally speaking. If you want to read an instruction manual on how to you know, build a bicycle or whatever, you don't need a companion book to read first. How do I read this instruction? You just read it and you understand it. And that's generally true of, of all literature. If it's written in our language, we can generally understand it. Um, obviously, some books are written at higher levels, some books that are technical. If you're reading a book about, you know, astrophysics or something, there are going to be terminology and concepts that maybe you're not familiar with, so you might have to look those up. But you won't have any trouble understanding the words and putting the sentences together and following the train of thought uh, of the authors. Uh, that's because language is, is universal. Um, all language, regardless of whether it's, you know, English, Spanish, Greek, Hebrew, Russian, uh, follows the same general rules of grammar and syntax. And as long as you understand those rules, you can communicate. Uh, language, of course, predates mankind. God spoke the world into existence using language, uh, but he didn't create man till the sixth day. So language is, uh, has uh, universal qualities and characteristics. Uh, and and if, as long as you apply those principles of language, you can understand uh, certain books. However, why do we then need a, a course or lots of books that have been uh, written on how to read and understand the Bible? Well, it's because, as I said last week, Satan has set his crosshairs right on uh, the Word of God uh, and intentionally trying to deceive people into thinking that it's complex, it's mystical, it's weird, nobody can really understand it. And of course, if you think back to uh, uh, the study that we started in Acts a couple of weeks ago, I kind of gave a quick survey of church history, and we talked about how for about a thousand years during the Middle Ages, nobody was even allowed to read the Bible. They were told by the Roman Catholic Church 
that they're not able to understand it, that it's a secret mystical book that only the priests can understand, and they'll tell you what it means. And so, you know, we're dealing with a lot of baggage in history that has led us to the point we are at today, where people have this mistaken notion that the Bible is too hard to understand. And, you know, you've probably come across people uh, that, that say that uh, as well. I come across them all the time that they'll say, well, I don't want to read the book of Revelation because nobody really understands it. And, you know, I just want to slap them because, of course, you can understand the book of Revelation. It's one of 66 books in God's revealed word, and he's given it to us so that we can know more about him. Uh, remember, as I've said many times, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. So there's nothing uh, unique about Revelation in the sense of whether or not it can be understood. As we're going to discuss in this uh, series, obviously there are different types of literature even within the Bible, but they still all use nouns and verbs and uh, prepositions and normal rules of language. And so, um, so the devil has really caused some confusion and it's led to a lot of bad interpretation, bad theology, even bad denominations and religions that alleged to be based on the Bible. So therefore we do need to be reminded about the basic rules for understanding uh, God's word. Now, um, if you go back uh, in, in your mind to your high school days, anybody ever remember studying uh, in uh, high school, say Shakespeare literature, for example? Already, at, by the time I was in high school, uh, and really well before that, I'm sure some of you can attest, uh, the attacks on language in general were already creeping into the compulsory government schooling system because I can vividly remember my ninth grade English teacher having us read uh, Shakespeare and then we would spend an entire class session or more talking about, well, what do you think that means? What does that mean to you? What do you think that means? And the more fantastical the meaning that some student would come up with, the more they would be applauded. When in reality, Shakespeare meant to communicate one thing when he put pen to paper, and that was it. It wasn't some mystical thing that he intended for there to be thousands of interpretations of, and yet that's what today passes for the study of, of literature, of classic literature, is, you know, what do you, you know, you become the arbiter of meaning, which, as we've talked about, meaning always resides with the words on the page and the author, author determines what it means just as the speaker returns uh, determines what it means right not the listener and not the reader if the reader determined what it meant then we have chaos because there would be as many meanings as there are readers but uh, meaning always resides with the author and the same thing is true uh, with God's word so um, as is our custom I want to start with um, a sort of a case study of a, a popular verse and uh, the one that came to me as I was preparing for tonight uh, was more of a concept than it was the verse. How many of you have heard of, well, first of all, how many of you have heard the song, Rose of Sharon? Do you remember that? Vaguely. I, I remember singing it as a high schooler in my church youth group. Um, let's see if I can put it to tune. Uh, rose, 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 Rose. Rose of Sharon, how I love thee, how I, I, I will ever love and serve thee till I die. And you sing it as a round, right? So um, how many of you heard that Rose of Sharon refers to Christ? 
Okay. What about uh, Lily of the Valleys? Another famous song. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the something, something. Anyway, uh, how many of you have heard that lily of the valley refers to Christ? All right. Where do we get that from? You ever thought about it? Does the Bible refer to Christ as either the rose of Sharon or the lily of the valleys? No, it comes from the, the book of the Song of Solomon. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, the uh, Shulamite woman is talking and referring to herself as the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And then Solomon, the beloved, responds in the next uh, verse. So I bring this up because many there are many similar uh, metaphors, or at least what people take as metaphors, from the book of Song of Solomon in particular, that we have applied to Christ when there's nothing in the context or in the book itself that would indicate that. So this is where we get back to, you know, the concentric circles of context and understanding what's being said. Um, when you approach the Bible with this spiritualized technique of interpretation, where it says one thing, but we get to make it mean something else, uh, you know, you... Uh, you end up really a far astray from what the context really is. So, again, great song. It's certainly any song that sings the praises of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is wonderful. But you just need to make sure you understand that the Bible does not refer to Christ as the Rose of Sharon or the Lily of the Valleys. All right, so let's go back to our 24 rules of interpretation. And we got through four last week. And for, uh, out of respect for those of you that were here last week, I don't want to end up spending the entire rest of our time on the same four, but I do want to touch on them for the sake of capturing it on the video. And then it always is helpful, I think, to reiterate. So we won't to dive as deep, but we'll at least touch on them. And then I want to get to, uh, you know, five and beyond uh, tonight. So we started out with some general principles of interpretation. I mentioned last week that these 24 rules that we're going through a lot of them, especially these first few, are foundational. They're not ones that you necessarily would, would memorize and have in the forefront of your mind as you're reading the Bible uh, because they're just sort of foundational and they kind of go without saying, especially among those who believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inerrant, infallible, that it's the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. But nevertheless, in a, in a study of how to read and understand the Bible, it's helpful to start out with the basics. So the first one is, always work from the fact that the Bible is authoritative. So, although the rules of language are universal, the Bible is in a class by itself among all literature. Why? Because it has a divine author. So, in fact, as you study theology, uh, a lot of times you'll see people refer to the author of a book of the Bible, say Peter or Paul, you'll see them refer to them in the literature as It'll be written like the author of Romans, they might say, and it'll be capital A slash little a U-T-H-O-R. And that's a way that conservative Bible scholars are, you know, reminding the reader that we understand that while Paul wrote Romans, ultimately the author of Romans is God, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit carried men along as they wrote the scripture. 
Uh, it's God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So, uh, so there's no question that, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like the Bible is just like a, a Robert Ludlum novel. It's not. It is in a class by itself. But that doesn't mean that the way we read and understand it changes and that it's some kind of spiritualized, mystical book that we have to divine the meaning of it in a cloud formation or something. No, we understand and, and, and come to the interpretation simply based on the words on the page. Um, but uh, the reason this is important is that liberal uh, scholarship, when studying the Bible, suggests that when the Bible differs from our beliefs or from so-called scientific beliefs, uh, which if, any, if there's anything this pandemic should have taught everyone, th those who didn't already know, it's that science is a farce. It's bought and paid for. Uh, it, there is a fundamental scientific method, but that's not what passes for official science today. Science is whatever big pharma pays for or whatever the auto industry pays for or whatever, you name it. They, they pay for the science so they can then sell the product. Um, so, but... When, when, when the Bible differs from our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, we have to change because the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. So that's the first principle. The second one is what we called last week the analogy of faith. Um, that's what theologians call it. It just means that the Bible best interprets itself. In other words, when you're reading the Bible, you cannot interpret one passage one way and then come over here to another passage and interpret it in contradiction to that first interpretation. The Bible has to be consistent. It cannot contradict itself. So uh, the reason this is important is that, you know, obviously there are certain parts of Scripture that, you know, take some study to really understand what's being said. Uh, some passages are easier to understand than others. Even Peter Remember, I referred to Paul as being difficult to understand sometimes. doesn't mean you can't understand it, but it does mean that some passages are more uh, complex. So we always interpret the obscure passages in light of the clear passages. So if there's a passage of Scripture that seems to be saying, for example, that you have to do good works to be saved, and yet we have hundreds of passages of Scripture that plainly state that our eternal salvation is a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ and received simply by faith, well, then we know that one passage that at, face, at first reading seems to be saying, well, you got to do good works, must not be saying that. And we look a little closer and we look at the context and we find out that's not uh, what it's saying. So the Bible interprets itself. It has to be consistent. Um, and a good example of that uh, that I think I've talked about before but in, in Genesis chapter 3, we have, of course, the account, uh, God's revelation to mankind about the fall of man. And uh, who was it, according to the Bible, that tempted Eve in the garden? Anybody recall? The serpent. Now, who was the serpent? The devil, Satan, right? Now, that's correct, as we've talked about, I think, in here some time ago. But did you know you'll search the entire book of Genesis in vain for a single reference anywhere in the entire book of Genesis to Satan or the devil? So how do we know that the serpent was in fact the devil? Well, because the Bible interprets itself. And we go to Genesis chapter 12, where God's word 1,500 years later, by the way, 
with a different human author, a different language even, Greek versus Hebrew, and we read that that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, right? Genesis or Revelation 12. So the Bible interprets itself. This is, if you go back to my five steps that we talked about way back at the beginning of this study, this is step two in that process, right? So it starts with the Bible, observation, what does it say, look at the context, use the literal grammatical historical method, which is what we're now getting into, you know, talking about. But then you expand the focus and you compare Scripture with Scripture. And that's called uh, theological synthesis is the fancy term, or uh, cross-referencing is what we call it. It's those center column notes in our uh, study Bibles that, you know, point us from one passage to another. And so that's part of uh, the process. But that is a fundamental general principle that the Bible best interprets itself. Number three, uh, we talked a lot about this last week, that you've got to be a Christian to fully embrace and properly apply the Scriptures, okay? You do not have to be a Christian to understand the meaning, okay? If you have you know, intelligence and you can understand nouns and subjects and verbs and grammar and syntax, you can understand the meaning. But apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit, you will not be able to fully embrace and apply and connect the dots. There's not this two-way street. So it's one thing, for example, to understand that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. There are people who believe that fact. They don't, especially these days in this postmodern age where otherworldliness and, you know, things that are beyond uh, the five senses are commonplace. People don't have a problem with that. You know, aliens, UFOs, you know, all these things, portals, people, oh yeah, sure, no problem. So people might say, sure, I don't have a problem believing that Jesus died and rose again. Uh, but... That, but that doesn't mean they're saved because according to the Bible, you are only saved when you believe that you are a sinner, that the penalty for your sin is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell, and that Jesus not only died and rose again, but he did so to pay your personal penalty for sin, that he's your substitute. He paid your penalty. And furthermore, you have to trust in him as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the forgiveness of sins, give you eternal life, right? So it's one thing to know and, and comprehend the meaning. It's another thing to apply it to your life. So there are plenty of atheists out there who, who when we read, I just happen to be open to Acts because that's where we were Sunday. If, I, if they read, then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. You know, if they're an unbeliever, they're not reading that and going, Oh, I don't know what that means. It's all just gibberish and weirdness. I, I can't even understand the words. They're, they're, not, they're not doing that. They, like anyone else who understands English, is reading that and thinking, well, Luke is telling us that uh, the Spirit of God came like a mighty rushing wind, and it appeared to them as divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. But that's where their understanding stops. They don't begin to then connect the dots and understand a full-fledged pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. They don't begin to connect that maybe with promises of Christ in the upper room, you know, 50-some-odd days earlier that we read about in John 14 to 7, or 13 to 17, right? So that's what we mean by number three here, is that um, you might be able to comprehend the meaning, 
but that's where it stops. You're not going to really be energized by and grow by the Word of God until you first place your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Does that make sense? Any questions? I was hoping there were... My, your, your clue to ask a question is when I take my water. That's a great time to make a comment or a question so that there's not people watching this dead time of me uh, swallowing water. All right. Uh, did you? Were you about to raise your hand? Yeah. No. no. Okay. Sorry. Well, you're always so you're always so kind that usually when I make a suggestion, you're like, "Okay, I'll help him out." But, all right. Number four. Um, we, we here's where we chased a long rabbit, and this is where we ended up ended last week. Um, we interpret personal experience in light of the scripture, not scripture in light of personal experience. And I don't want to rehash this, although it's a very important topic. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but experiences are real, right? But how we interpret our own experience has to be in perfect accord with Scripture. So, for example, in our uh, Spirit of the Antichrist series, that 18-part uh, video series that we did last a year ago almost, uh, we talked about uh, UFOs and UAPs and the U.S. government. That was one of the one of the videos. And there is no question, especially now in the last three years since the uh, New York Times broke the article back in twenty what was it eighteen I think, uh, that these there's something's been going on since the late 1940s and the U.S. government's been tracking it and it's intensifying and increasing right. So that experience is real. What is it? Right? Well, it's not little green Martians and little aliens, because that would contradict God's word and man created in the image of God, the highest pinnacle of creation, so on and so forth. So those of us who have studied that and, and written and talked about it, we believe that it, based on scripture, the best explanation is that it is dimensional, that it's spiritual, that it's demonic, that it's something happened in the heavenlies. We see examples of that in Scripture. We talk. We see cosmic battles and struggles between, say, Michael the Archangel and uh, demonic beings, and so uh, that's a perfect example where, you know, you cannot hold a belief based on an experience that contradicts Scripture. Uh, we don't want to uh, demean or mock people's experience because, you know, people have experiences. They have dreams, or they, you know, they they have feelings. But we need to say, you know, be honest with ourselves when we have those and say, I'm not sure what that means, but let me find a biblical solution to that experience that I just had. Yeah. Well, I didn't catch last week, but you mentioned that uh, this particular point brought the discussion down the rabbit hole. In play. Okay, the other day I was talking to a person that was taking a dream interpretation so, interpret personal experience. Interpret your dreams based on Scripture. Yeah, so the question is, uh, he was talking to someone who was taking a dream interpretation class. And I guess what you're asking is, how does that relate to this principle here, right? Well, it adds another level. It's not what you're experiencing in life. It's how your mind is interpreting 
whatever it needs to resolve in dreams. Yeah. So, you know, it adds another layer because it's, it's dealing with how your mind is interpreting life experiences and so forth. So I am fascinated by that subject. I've written, I mean, I've read extensively about it, listened to a ton of uh, uh, interviews and stuff over the years. I'm uh, familiar with all the different kinds of dreams, like lucid dreaming. And I've, I've, re I've read some of the top experts in dream interpretation. So my answer to that would be, it's, it's one thing to study the human psyche and try to figure out why you had the kind of dream that you had. That's not necessarily contradicting Scripture unless, you know, you have a dream in which you are feeling a message that in and of itself, that message is contrary to the absolute truth of God's Word. That'd be a different story. But uh, there's clearly lots of research and study that have been done on this and you we know it anecdotally you know how many times have you had a dream and remembered it the next time and then you can think oh that part of my dream probably became came from this something we watched on tv or this conversation i had or whatever so you know that the human mind is a powerful thing and of course the luciferians as we've talked about have tapped into that and they they can really wreak havoc to achieve their goals with mind control and the whole MK Ultra program and things like that. Um, so the fact that we dream and the fact that our dreams might reflect something in our uh, mind or something in our day-to-day -day experience, that those facts in and of themselves are not contrary to Scripture. Where you get into problems is if someone is like a, a soothsayer or a... Uh, palm reader or something uh, uh, where they're trying to say, tell me your dream and I'll tell you what that means. And it means that you're going to meet Prince Charming and you're going to get married and you're going to give me that hundred bucks for your 20 minutes, right? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a violation of scripture because that type of activity is expressly forbidden in scripture. Does that help kind of categorize or clarify it a little bit? Pretty much it's bad food. It's bad food. <laughs> bad dreams are a result of bad food. Yeah, Anne. Um, we've kind of taken Big Farmer to task over the weeks. Uh, but when I look at this and I think of Christian authors and speakers who are making a lot of money and being published um, for this exact thing, mm -hmm. I, I would hold Christian publishers to a higher standard than even Big Pharma and say, shame on them. Yeah. Because it's terrible. Yeah, so the comment is we've we've uh, all taken Big Pharma to task over the last couple of years, especially, of course, some of us have been preaching against Big Pharma for 15 years. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, and by the way, if you're interested in that topic, uh, there's also a video not only about UFOs, but one of the 18 videos is on Big Pharma. But... But your comment was that in a similar way, it's really even more, perhaps more damaging when Christian publishing companies p publish books that are way off base on this topic and, you know, promoting experiential mystical stuff rather than rooted in the Word of God. Well, I'm sure you, I don't have to tell you that most Christian publishing companies were long ago bought out by the corporate elite. And uh, so it's only the indie publishers now that that really, I think, have any merit. But all the biggies, not that their old stuff isn't good, but 
they've become controlled, just like most big megachurches are controlled, right? So uh, the, the reality is we've got to get away from trusting a brand and learn to, to have critical thinking skills and evaluate everything we read through the lens of Scripture. I'm continually amazed that people that will read so-called Christian books without any discernment at all. And it ought, the first thing everyone ought to do before you read a book, first thing every time, is turn it over and, and read two things on the back. Number one, read who's blurbing it, because every book has, you know, two or, two or three typically little statements by other people to try to market the book, you know. Franklin Graham says this book's great, you know, best book I've ever read, you know, whatever. And then secondly, read the bio of the author. Find out where they went to school, what their theological framework is, where are they coming from. Now, having done that, it doesn't necessarily mean even if both of those don't pass the test, doesn't mean you might not read it because, you know, every book has some value, there's information in it, but at least it gives you a perspective, right? So, and what's weird is Christians tend to be the most susceptible to that type of uh, lack of discernment, right? In the, in the political realm, because we've all bought into the lie of the right-left paradigm, you know, those of us on the right, right, we will, without blinking an eye, pick up a book by Sean Hannity or Rush Limbaugh or Mark Levin. But we would never pick up a book by, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Barney Frank, right? Why? Oh, because they're, they're from that group, right? And I'm not saying that's, that's bad, but what I'm saying is if it, you know, if it's on sale at the Christian bookstore, of course, we don't have Christian bookstores anymore. We have Christian knickknack stores now. But back in the day when you had, <laughs> but back in the day when you had Christian bookstores, um, you know, whatever was marketed on the front you know, table with balloons and you know, get a free bowl of soup if you buy it or whatever, that's what we buy. And nobody would even, you may have never heard of the author, but you wouldn't take the time typically to look and learn something about them. So that's, that's the, the first thing. So regardless of whether it's an indie publisher or one of the big publishers that are now controlled by uh, the publishing industry, the secular publishing industry, uh, we, need to, we need to read uh, all that we read and run it through the grid of Scripture and make sure that it passes the test, right? Okay, so that was where we left off last week. Um, so let's, uh, let's move on. Number five, still under the category of general principles of interpretation. Biblical examples are authoritative, meaning they're timeless truths, only when supported by a command. Now, here's where we're getting into to some things that you might want to try to remember or jot down as you're studying, especially if you're studying historical narratives. Now, can anybody remind me, let me see if I can find the chart, what uh, the historical narratives are in Scripture? I guess I don't have that uh, Acts. in the New Testament. We, we know one. <laughs> yeah, we know one because we're studying it right now. Very good. Uh, oh, here they are. Um, so in the Old Testament, historical books are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, uh, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, are uh, historical in nature, but they're kind of a subset of 
the historical books. They're not strictly speaking the same category in the same way that in the New Testament, the book of Acts is the only purely historical book written as a historical narrative, that is. And the Gospels are historical books, but the Gospel genre is unique. It, it takes selected events of the life and ministry of Christ and puts them in an order in order to make a theological point. So similarly, you really need to understand the teaching of Genesis in the context of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So uh, if we go back to this uh, principle that we're talking about, when you're reading the historical portions of Scripture, it is very easy, and, and pastors do this all the time. I go back and, uh, and, and sometimes I'll think about old sermons that I did 32 years ago when I first started in ministry, and it's laughable. In fact, you know, we just moved, and as we were uh, unpacking, I found a big tub of old sermon tapes, cassette tapes, from 93 to 95. And one of these days, when I have nothing better to do and need a good laugh, <laughs> I'm going to find a cassette recorder, first of all, and then I'm going to put in a cassette and I'm going to laugh at myself because uh, I, I've, you know, it's a journey and I was not always the best exegete in, in the early days of ministry. But pastors in particular struggle, I think, with preaching the narratives. Uh, it's, it's, it's much easier for me to preach the epistles, which are direct you know, commands and instruction on how to live life and how to do church and, and how to be a Christian than it is to take these examples. So you'll get a, a taste of that as we go through Acts, as I try to you know, explain what Luke is telling us happened and then pull out some principles and cross-reference to show you that this is a real principle because it's supported in Scripture elsewhere. Um, so biblical examples are authoritative only when uh, supported by a command. So, uh, you know, examples of this, um, I think I've used this example before, uh, but if you think about Genesis uh, and the story of uh, Joseph and, and uh, when he was serving in uh, Potiphar's house, and remember Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and uh, he fled, if you remember. Well, I've you know, frequently come across references to that story in both books or, you know, Christian books or sermons or stuff where people say this passage teaches us, you know, how to avoid adultery, right? But is that really the meaning of that passage, right? That's what happened. But you could take anything that happened in a historical account, a narrative, and turn it into a principle, right? I could just as easily preach that passage and say the the bible teaches us here why you should never go to work for an egyptian I mean, right i mean that's what happened and it didn't end well right so uh, you know we've got we've got to make sure that we especially and we'll get into rules for narrative literature in a little bit in this study but you've got to make sure you you understand this not everything that happens in a narrative is intended to be something we should follow. I mean, for example, go back to Abraham. I mean, are we to assume that everything Abraham did, God put his stamp of approval on it? Of course not, right? Yeah. So is, this is truly a command? Is it, is it a 
personal command for each believer or is it a command for the body of Christ? Well, so the question is, are we talking personal commands here or command for the body of Christ at large? Essentially, what we're, what we're saying is that there are portions of historical narratives that regardless of what's going on in the narrative, when God speaks, for example, you can take it to the bank. So, um, you know, I, the Lord, do not lie. Okay, well, that's a timeless truth. It happened in the context of a narrative, but it's, it's a principle, right? Um, you know, I do not change, God says, right? So he's immutable. That's a principle that even though it happened in the course of a narrative, because when God speaks, everything he says is universally true. It might be targeted at one person, but depending on what he says. Now, if he says something specific to Abraham or to Moses, like, you know, speak to the rock, he said to Moses, right? Remember when Rose, Moses struck the rock? Well, that's not meaning that we should all go around talking to rocks, right? Uh, that's obviously in the narrative has a specific, but sometimes in the course of the narrative, either the prophets speaking on behalf of God or God himself speaking will say something that is, uh, you know, a, a timeless truth about himself. And so those are the kinds of things that we can uh, take to the bank. Now, you know, in terms of biblical examples, if, you know, if I'm going back to Joseph and Potiphar's wife, we have a command in the New Testament. I think it's Paul speaking to Timothy, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, where he says, flee youthful lusts. That's a command, right? So it's perfectly good handling of Scripture to be able to say, you know what? The Bible teaches that we should flee lusts, that we should uh, flee sexual immorality. Now, here's an example in history, in God's Word, of somebody doing that. Now, he didn't, obviously, Joseph didn't have the benefit of the teachings of, of Paul some 2,000 years later, but it's still an example. In fact, I, I love trying to use biblical examples to illustrate biblical commands. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I, I actually make an intentional effort to try to illustrate commands in the New Testament with examples from the Old Testament. Uh, not, not always, you know, able to do that. Sometimes you just have to come up with an illustration from, from life, you know. But I think that's really what we're getting at here is that, you know, you can principalize something from a narrative as long as you can back it up with a command in Scripture that is universally true. All right, number six, uh, this goes back to my point number five or step number five in my five steps of the Bible study process, is remember the primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to increase our knowledge. The primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to increase our knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. And, and as I've said when we talked about the five steps in the Bible study process, there are, the, wor the world is, I think I said, the world is filled with biblically brilliant, morally bankrupt people. Because knowing the Word of God is not the end goal. You know, you, you might win a Bible trivia game, or, you know, you might impress your friends, 
but, but if it's not translated into personal application and changing your life and conforming to the image of Christ, you haven't really got to the end, to, to the finish line. Yeah. Additionally, does this address the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Um, the question is, does this principle, number six here, address the distinction between knowledge and wisdom? I think it's a corollary. Um, you know, wisdom is how to put knowledge to use, right? Um, so wisdom is the practical application side of, you know, you have to have the information before you can make a wise choice, right? And Proverbs makes that, that distinction. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely part of the equation. And obviously, the more we know the Word of God, the, the, the wiser we become if we apply it. But you can know the Word of God and then, you know, just not live it. And anyway, I've given examples of this when we've talked about the five steps in the process. But, you know, there are, you know, famous examples of pastors and televangelists and others who I think at some point uh, really had a passion for, you know, sincerity for the Word of God, but something happened. They got away from the Lord. They stopped praying. They stopped being accountable. They stopped fellowshipping with other believers. And so they could stand up and go through the motions. And like the one pastor I, I uh, had that was a part of the personal experience that I had back 20 years ago when I was teaching full-time, you know, they could stand up week after week and preach against adultery, but throughout the week be having an affair with the secretary the whole time, right? So that's a matter of a seared conscience. It's a matter of quenching the spirit. Um, and they knew, he knew the Bible, right? But he didn't apply it. Um, so every time we pick up the Bible, you know, this course, this study is about how to understand it, and that's important, but that's why I started out at the beginning of the series by saying the goal is to change our lives, not just get smarter, right? Um, so, you know, we ought to, every time we pick up the Bible, we ought to pray, Lord, help this to mold and shape me, you know, help this to help me conform to the image of your son. So, you know, the reality is when, when we get saved at the moment we trust Christ for salvation, when faith meets the gospel and we're born again, you know, reborn, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born from above, literally, then we're, we have to grow. And just the same way that a physical baby is born and grows, you know, we're watching that now with our granddaughter. It's just amazing, right? Uh, a spiritual newborn babe grows. And, you know, the goal is until the Lord comes back or until we go the way of all flesh is to be uh, progressively growing in our Christ-likeness. Now, life is a journey, and, and sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. And the Bible tells all kinds of examples and, and theologically explains that for some people, they, it might be ten steps back and only an occasional step forward. You can be backslidden. You can be carnal, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, you, you know, it's not recommended, but if you cater to the flesh, you will end up really not looking or acting much like a believer. Um, that's this progressive sanctification concept in Scripture. It's the gradual, sanctified means set apart. So the Bible uses the word uh, sanctified, I think it's hagiazo, 
uh, <clears throat> three different ways you can be positionally sanctified once and for all the moment you trust Christ. That's the same as justification. It's a synonym for justification. And someday when we go to glory, we will ultimately be perfectly set apart in heaven. That's uh, perfect sanctification, which is the synonym for glorification. But the most common use of the term sanctified in Scripture refers to the day-by-day, -day, progressive, gradual conforming to the image of Christ, becoming more Christ-like as we stay in the Word, uh, pray, fellowship with other believers, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, that, that's the goal. Now, we, we won't ever, contrary to what some uh, theologians teach, we'll never reach sinless perfection this side of glory. Why? Well, the Bible teaches that, first of all, but second of all, because it's bound up in the flesh. As long as we have this corrupted flesh that was corrupted at the fall and we're born in sin, you know, when conception took place, a sinner was created, right? Uh, and nothing can change that until this mortal puts on immortality, this corruptible puts on incorruption, and we have our glorified bodies in heaven. So, you know, we can't ultimately become perfect outwardly until we get to heaven. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, right? You know, that's, that's, the, that's the struggle of this earthly life. And, and by the way, in the same way, even though we'll never fully understand everything perfectly in God's Word from Genesis to Revelation, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try, right? Um, so that's, that's our task. And someday we won't have to deal with the presence of sin anymore because we'll be in heaven. But until then, the God, God has given us the Holy Spirit in, indwelling permanently within every believer who convicts, leads, guides, exhorts, you know, does all the ministries of the Holy Spirit. And as we yield to him, like we talked about Sunday, if we catch the wind, it's going to make a difference in our life. And, you know, when we fall short, we want to make sure and confess that before the Lord. That means to agree with God. Hey, Lord, I blew it. You know, I lost my temper. I got angry or whatever. And, and then continue to strive to stay in the word and follow the, the spirit and not the flesh, right? So, but, you, but it takes, you know, the word of God to do that. Uh, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. What's it talking about there? Uh, soul, that which longs for the flesh. Spirit, that which longs for God and the, the spirit of God. And sometimes those things are hard to distinguish, right? And the word of God helps us distinguish that. So, you know, I find that people that are not living uh, particularly godly, spirit-filled lives, generally it's you know, if you really dive a little deeper, you find they haven't been in the Word of God for weeks. You know, you just can't do it alone. This is the tool that God has given us. Um, I should have, if I'd have known we were going to get go down this road, I would have put up my uh, slide that we've used on Sundays before on uh, uh, no, I can't even remember it now, but the concept is you got to know the Word, no trust, obey. That's what it is. You got to know the Word of God before you can trust the Word of God. And the more you know about God, the more you'll trust Him, right? Like, we don't trust perfect strangers, right? Some total perfect stranger uh, comes up to you and, and says, uh, 
you know, hey, let's uh, let's go, you know, be alone in a dark alley somewhere. You're going to go, you know, hopefully you'll pull your, you know, 40 caliber and just remind them who's in charge. Um, but if, you know, your lifelong friend of 40 years comes along or your spouse or your friend or your relative and says, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee, you're going to not even think twice. Why? Because you know them. The more you know somebody, the more you trust them. And so how do we get to know God? By studying his word. This is his way of saying, here I am, look at me. And the more we trust him, then it leads to the third step, which is obedience. Right? In essence, every time we disobey the Lord or his word, in essence, it's a lack of faith. Right? Because every time it comes down to who are you going to trust? It's the proverbial angels on the shoulder. You know, you got the, the bad angel saying, oh, come on, take a bite. It's going to be great. Isn't that apple red and shiny? And then the Spirit of God saying, no, it's not going to go well. Trust me, don't eat it. And when we sin, we're essentially saying, I don't trust the Word of God. I'm trusting my flesh. So the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So really, all sin comes down to a lack of faith. So that's why the model that I am referring to, the no trust, obey model, is it starts with the Word of God. It doesn't end there. Just knowing the Word of God doesn't guarantee that we're going to be godly people. <laughs> we got to know it, then we got to trust it. Yeah, God, I see that you're faithful. I see that through the years you've always you know, been a covenant-keeping God and so forth. And then when it comes time to make those choices, we'll say, you know what? I'm going to trust the Spirit of God on this one, and I'm going to not yield to the flesh. So no, trust, obey. So the great old hymn, Trust and Obey, uh, is uh, really a great theological principle. Uh, now, one passage that came to my mind, I don't have it on the screen, well, let me see if I can put my fingers on it, is James chapter uh, 1, where he says, uh, well, let's pick it up in verse 23, or verse 22, James 1, 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So you see the distinction there between hearing and, and presumably understanding or knowing the Word of God. The next step is then do what it says. But notice what he says. If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now this is the New King James is what I'm reading from. Uh, the phrase natural face there in Greek is literally the face of his birth. And James has just talked about the new birth when he... Uh, talked about being born from above earlier in the chapter. So he's talking here about our new birth. So if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in the mirror, sees his new self, goes on to say, verse 24, observes himself, but goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So you look in the mirror, you see the new nature in Christ, you see that you're positionally in Christ as a believer, a child of God, but you turn and walk away and you act like the old man. You act like an unbeliever. You act like the flesh, right? And notice what he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, that's the word of God, 
and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And that's the verse that kind of came to my mind a moment ago, is that blessing comes not from hearing and understanding the Word of God, but from doing the Word of God. So it's not enough just to know the Word and increase our knowledge. We need to then apply it and do what it says. And that's when blessing comes in our life. Okay. Any th thoughts or questions? Yeah. Um, so in number six, is that, are you talking about like general knowledge? Because if you look at Colossians 1, where it talks about growing in knowledge, increasing in knowledge, it's talking about increasing in your knowledge of God. Absolutely, yeah. And when you increase in your knowledge of God, then it is life-changing in life. Experience. Well, so again, I, let's go to Colossians 1 because that's a great passage. Um, if I can find it. Is that in the New Testament, Jeffrey? <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians. So used to using my online version here, Colossians 1. I found it. It was right where it should be. Um, uh, yeah, so it goes back to the paradigm. No, trust, obey. It absolutely starts with knowledge. If you have no appetite for the Word of God, if you don't know the Word of God, if you're a biblical neophyte, there's no hope for spiritual growth. Because this is what God has given us to grow. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Right? Um, how, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to the Word. Again, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is quick and powerful. So absolutely has to have knowledge. But what I'm saying is, the sanctification process doesn't happen by osmosis. The fact that we can name the four gospel writers or the 66 books of the Bible or we can name the 12 disciples or we can just have all this knowledge, the fact that we have biblical knowledge doesn't guarantee we're going to be godly. We've got to yield, exactly, we've got to yield to the Holy Spirit and, and, and you know, now you're right, I think... There is this dynamic relationship because as we're growing in Christ and we have more and more of his word and the knowledge of his word, more about him in our hearts, when faced with life circumstances and choices, the Spirit of God is going to bring to our remembrance certain verses, which are then going to be, oh yeah, God's word says don't do this, or God's word says that, or I need to remember this, right? So it's, but all I'm saying is it's, it's a process that starts with knowing the word, but then you got to trust it and follow it and believe it, and then you got to you know uh, uh, obey it. You know, so uh, I don't think number six here is talking about. It's not. I know what I'm not. Uh, since I wrote it, I can tell you what I mean. I think I can. Uh, at this point, I may not be able to. No, I'm talking here about. The primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives, not to increase our biblical knowledge. Um, because again, there are... Knowledge of God. Or knowledge of God, right. Which the Bible is God's way of communicating His self-revelation to us about Him, right. It's called, that's why we call it the Word of God. That's why the Bible calls it the Word of God. So biblical knowledge, God, knowledge about God, same thing. Um, so... Um, as I said, there are plenty of biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt people because they didn't go beyond the knowledge. So remember what we just read in James. It's not enough to hear and understand the word. You've got to obey the word. Yeah. So in number six, it says the primary purpose 
This will change our lives. Absolutely. But increasing our knowledge of God towards that end, they certainly go hand in hand. Absolutely. And I think the emphasis here is primary. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that increasing your knowledge of God, uh, you know, is not part of the process. It is. Uh, but I'm what I'm getting at here is that you know, as you're reading the Bible, don't think of it as preparing for an exam. Think of it as, how is this going to make my life glorify you more, Lord? That, that's the goal. Right. That's better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, that's, that's good. So that was, that was a good discussion. Um, it's 7 o'clock, so let's stop there, and uh, we'll pick up with number 7. Uh, next time we got some some more really good ones coming up. I've got a total of nine general principles, and then we're going to get into some grammatical principles, which will go a little faster because they're pretty pretty basic, but you still need to remember them. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming, and hopefully we'll see you uh, Sunday.